ब्यूटिफुल गेम and one of the most heartfelt or one of the most important part of football is the football commentary because football is not just about fans going on to the stadium it's a game that is watched across multiple screens in different parts of the world and football commentary is one of or the heartthrob of football these days and i'm so happy and so excited to welcome none other than the legend john helm onto this episode welcome to the episode john thank you it's always my pleasure absolutely delighted to be with you same same <laughs> same feelings here john and chris is again the co-host of the show he is on the show today so welcome back chris glad to be back glad to be back take your mind off yesterday anyway um <laughs> all the issues surrounding that game but it's great to have john on the show really looking forward to it exactly same here yeah, john so I mean before moving on to any specific topic John we'll start with your career you actually started your career as I I guess uh, reporting for newspapers local newspapers national newspapers etc and then went on with BBC and I think your first big opportunity was the Commonwealth Games I guess in 1974 or 76 I I guess was it well that was certainly one of my biggest breaks uh, I've actually been working since August the 17th 1959 which makes me very old I uh, I accept that <laughs> if you're right as I'm sure but apparently yeah. even when I was a little lad I used to dribble a football to school pretending to be a commentator and my teacher said he knows what he wants to do and I've achieved that dream so from very early on I knew I was never going to be a great player I've worn spectacles since the age of 8 so I knew I was never going to be an England centre forward there was a chance <laughs> I could have been a, a decent cricketer uh, where spectacles are not such a handicap uh, but I actually began in journalism at the age of 17 uh, and I worked my way up really through 7 years on a weekly newspaper covering absolutely everything local council meetings local court meetings and a bit of local sport as well and then I had 4 years on the Yorkshire Post which is a daily newspaper working both morning and evening papers before I joined Radio Leeds so the big break for for me came when the BBC actually approached me in 1970 to become the sports editor of Radio Leeds and it was during that my spell there that I was asked to cover the 1974 Commonwealth Games in Christchurch New Zealand which I did and I was working alongside absolute legends of broadcasting and I hope the names mean something to you people like Des Lynham Brian yeah. Jones Cliff Morgan absolutely wonderful broadcasters and I like to think a little bit of their professionalism rubbed off on me so you're right that was a huge step in my career <laughs> and and your journey with football started i think with the world cup or i mean inter, in on the international stage definitely started with the 1982 world cup if i'm not wrong well i, I always consider that the 82 world cup was the best uh people different people have different views a lot of english people of course loved italy in 90 because we did so well but i had the privilege in 1982 of commentating on every one of the brazilian teams matches and they for me 
were the best football team I've ever seen. I mean, I've been in love with football since 1953 when I went to watch my beloved Bradford Park Avenue, uh, very much <laughs> the football league club at that time, of course, but now playing in the National League. Uh, but when I commentated on Brazil, it was like a pinnacle. The names still today, Zico, Socrates, Falcao, Eder, Junior, they just rolled off the tongue and the goals rolled off their boots as well. Uh, and for me to commentate on every one of their games, I could honestly have wept when they lost to Italy. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to anybody of Italian origin. <laughs> chap called Paolo Rossi got a hat-trick on the day. But honestly, I really wanted Brazil to win that World Cup because they were the best team I've ever seen, ever. I mean, you, you talked about legendary players like Zico, etc. I mean, I mean, as, as a guy born in 1996, I've definitely not witnessed them live on TV or anywhere. Just read about them and just reading about them gives me goosebumps. So I can understand how you feel when you commentate or when you watch them live. So, yeah, that must have been special. Uh, yeah, very much so. And of course, I got to know Zico in later years when he became the manager of FC Goa. Yeah. He was there for, for three years and he's a charming gentleman. I got to know him very well. Uh, astonishingly, Socrates came over to play at a team in Leeds, which is near where I live in England. Uh, and so I covered that story as well. But if you know what I mean, those names, they were just fantastic names. You've used the word goosebumps there. And I got goosebumps watching them and calling the goals. You know, I remember one that Falcao scored. It, the sun was shining. The, the Brazilian fans were fantastic. They were noisy. It was a colourful occasion. And just everything about that World Cup for me was about the beauty of the sport that we all love. You and I are talking today, and Chris, we're all talking today because we share the same passion. We love our football. We love sports in general, <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I yeah, love yeah. as well, and I love golf, and I love rugby. We all have that same passion. And when you see it played at its best, as I did with Brazil, well, you feel as though you've reached a pinnacle. You really do. Yeah. One of the things, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the 1982 World Cup myself, John. I, I'd love to pick your brains on that in a moment, um, especially that one, because for me, it always seems comes across as one of the most nostalgic of the World Cups, maybe just due to the commentary which is a compliment towards yourself and everyone else, that compliment. Maybe it was just the fact that it was in Spain uh, and the fans and the atmosphere seemed to build that World Cup, but as well, just given the names and maybe possibly the format uh, that the tournament uh, was set up in at that time. But just touching back on your early career, uh, like you've mentioned, uh, you went through working for, I believe, I believe it was uh, local newspapers and national newspapers, first of all, before you went through to the BBC and worked on uh, Radio Leeds. Was it, your, was it always your aim to, be, to commentate on major sporting events once you were going through that process? Or was that just something that came, was that more op opportunity opportunistic sorry yeah i think i think it was the latter chris in many ways when i was a boy yeah. i used to love listening to the radio and these names would probably mean nothing to you but there were commentators like raymond glenn denning and they always had really strong voices bill mclaren on rugby union as well and yeah like dan maskell and tennis and uh 
Peter Allison goal. And I just thought that they were, John Arlott was a hero of mine and I got to produce Test Match Special as well as part of my career. Um, but I knew I always wanted to be involved in journalism, but I don't think I ever dreamt that I would reach the lofty heights of working for the BBC. So when they approached me, I was absolutely gobsmacked to use uh, uh, an expression that's probably not the best coming out of a journalist's mouth. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I always had that uh, that love and passion for words and description. I was good at English at school. It's probably my best subject. And so I did always want to be involved in journalism, but not necessarily broadcasting. And when broadcasting first came along, I, I made the most stupid comment to the, the man who signed me up for the BBC, a chap called Phil Sidey. I said, why on earth do you want me with a, a Yorkshire accent? <laughs> because you're working for a Yorkshire radio station, you know, don't be stupid. And accents are far more acceptable now. I obviously have a northern accent, but uh, accents are far more acceptable than they were for the BBC back in the 1930s, for example, where people tended to speak a very posh voice, you know, a bit like that. And we, we it's not like that anymore. Um, so I always had that dream, yes, throughout those, those days of being um, a top journalist, but not necessarily a top broadcaster. That was the bit that took me by surprise, I think. Um, although I say myself, I think I did take it to a bit like a Dr. Water because people said I was a natural sort of communicator. And I, I was able to portray my enthusiasm, I think, for sport through the words and through the broadcast media, which is, has stood me in good stead for, for a long time now. Yeah. And, and you've mentioned uh, getting that big opportunity at the 1982 World Cup. And for me, I, I was born just after that, so I didn't get to get the experience of watching those tournaments live. But as a, as a football fan, I'm always interested and intrigued by the history of the game and what happened sort of prior to my life. And I'm sort of more interested in those events more than the ones that I actually experienced. And the 1982 World Cup, during the pandemic, uh, given the amount of football that you could watch because of the lack of live football, uh, I had I watched the Germany-France game. Yeah. Was it the over semi-final? Yeah, Schumacher and yeah. Batistone. Well, yeah, obviously it always gets referred to because of that one uh, particular incident. But I was just uh, overwhelmed by the actual events of that game. Oh, uh, and what a, a, yeah, what a fantastic football match it was. Now you've highlighted the Brazil team there, and it always it always intrigues me this because it often gets forgotten about this forgotten about this Brazil team, partially because it didn't actually win the tournament. But given the fact that you've experienced watching them and you were such a fan, would you say it was the greatest team ever to win the World Cup? Oh, without question. Yeah. Without question. I think it's the greatest team there's ever been. Um, <laughs> you, you, you could talk about the Hungarian team of the late 1950s who came over to England and beat England 6-3 at Wembley and then beat them 6-1 yeah. in Budapest. They were a fantastic team as well. And the Real Madrid that won the first five European Cups. I mean, they were a fantastic team as well. Pushkas, Di Stefano, Hento. Uh, but things move on, don't they? Uh, and it's yeah. different compare eras. I mean, today you would say that Ronaldo and Messi are the best in the world and would have been yeah. at any stage of their uh, of their careers. Uh, yeah. It is hard to compare. But for me, that Brazilian team was definitely the, the one that should have won the World Cup. Uh, they beat Argentina, remember, in that, as you mentioned, the format earlier. It was a different format to today. They had yeah. the first group matches against uh, Russia, New Zealand and Scotland. Then they were up against uh, Argentina and Italy in a second round. 
and Maradona got himself sent off in that match against Brazil uh, in in Barcelona. Um, yeah. But there was just some aura about that Brazilian side. You know, they had a bit of a dodgy goalkeeper and they had a bit of a <laughs> centre forward. But the other nine, even Leandro, the right back, was fantastic. Oscar, the centre half, absolutely terrific footballers. And I don't think there's ever been a team as exotic as Brazil in the way that they played for Mario Zagallo. They played the most beautiful football you've ever seen. And the hair stood up on the back of your neck when you watched them attack into rows. They look capable of scoring five and six goals every time they play. So for me, yeah. the team ever, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it's, it's always, everyone always refers to the Dutch team, don't they, from 1974. And obviously yeah. they got beat by Germany in in the final and obviously given the the high profile of Johan Cruyff people always seem to just refer to that team and possibly the 78 team as well but yeah I always think the Brazil team and I'm glad you mentioned it that Brazil team and the glamour of it and the style of it often get go gets brushed under the carpet a little bit possibly just because of the other events in the tournament um, as well sort of I mean the action of Paolo Rossi once he scores in the final uh, often gets referred to as well but that Brazil team for me always gets again probably because of the success of the other teams as well maybe that's sort of the nature of it but yeah it is it, it, I am sort of really happy that, that that gets pointed out because it was a fantastic team and just to uh, when you see some of the clips of the way they play fo- they actually play football I mean there was that times where you, where you watched them and they were just sort of walking around the pitch just passing it they were yeah. that relaxed and that content of being that good on the ball it's sort of it's nice to see they yeah. had an aura about them they had an aura Chris. and I'm delighted to hear that a man of your age is interested in the history and things that happened before you I mean I yeah. remember the first World Cup I saw on television in black and white obviously was 1954 but I still yeah. seeing a chap called Helmut Rahn score the winning goal and that excited me and then it was on to um, 1958 and Sweden and I can remember some of the games there and the emergence of Pelé of course yeah. to Chile and then of course 66 in England so you know the World Cup was already building in my, in my imagination and, and then to be a part of it just meant so much more. And there have been great teams. You've mentioned the Cruyff and Naiskins team of, of the Dutch. You know, the Argentina team that beat them in 78 with Ardilis and Kempes and Luque was a fantastic team. And that was the Ticker Tape World Cup, which was my first, by the way, uh, as a BBC. I was a I was producer there, actually, although I did come oh, right. on Brazil versus Italy in that World Cup. Um, so if you go back through history, there have been wonderful players, and it's lovely that younger people acknowledge that and read up about it. I always did when I was a boy. I was fascinated in cricketers like John Bradman and, and footballers like Stanley Matthews, or he was still around when I was playing. But uh, they, um, they conjured up images for me. Uh, and I think that is so important. And you've got to imagine the beautiful game. And Brazil played. Exactly. I mean, uh, I'm just 24, and I'm just, I mean, getting into knowing more and more about what happened before '96, what happened in the '50s, what happened in the '60s, etc. And yeah, like like you mentioned, it's always intriguing to learn more about the game before because. There are so many amazing stuff. There are so many amazing plays that people have not covered or people still have not spoken much about because, and even our website, uh, on our website, we do try to cover a lot of stories, a lot of history as well, football history as well. So 
I mean, definitely we uh, discover a lot of lot and lot more information every day. So yeah, it's 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 wonderful to speak to someone who's who's been there live, who's watched those games live, etc. And I mean, you spoke about the '82 World Cup, and one of the teams or one of the international teams that you commentated a lot on is Scotland. So me being a Liverpool fan, I mean, the likes of Kenny Dalglish, Graham Souness, etc. had you know a lot of games back then and. Sunes is a player i mean definitely due to his panditry people people definitely have a lot of you know mixed opinions about sunes but as a player a lot of people say that he was really really good at what 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 he did as a player he was absolutely one of the best and did you think sunes was you know definitely i mean appreciated in his time or what did you make of his playing career Yes, Graham Souness was an absolutely brilliant footballer. He, he did uh, divide opinion in one sense. He was a hard man. People talk about some of the hard men who have graced, if that's the right word, English football, and tend to overlook Graham Souness. He was hard. He was a biting tackler in the middle of the field, and sometimes he did go over the top. You know, Nowadays, he's an extremely articulate pundit, one of the best. He analyses a game better than most. Uh, and he was part of a team, you've already mentioned Kenny Dalgleish, there was also Alan Hansen, was an absolutely yeah. defender. But again, Scotland always suffered from having a dodgy goalkeeper, <laughs> I'm afraid to say. Uh, and they, would, they never had 11 great players. I mean, in 1978, tippy, that, that absolutely typified Scotland. They'd been told, uh, their fans, that Scotland were going to go and win the World Cup in Argentina by their coach, Ali McLeod. They set off, they arrived in Argentina. What did they do? They lost their first match 3-1 to Peru. They <laughs> drew 1-1 with Iran. And then typical Scotland, they went and beat Holland 3-2 with a fantastic goal for Archie Gemmell. So, you know, that is sort of that sums them up. They never quite get there because no matter how good a squad of players they've got, they've never quite got enough to go that the whole way. But soon as was a, a absolutely excellent footballer. Yeah, yeah. I think it would uh, be impossible not to mention England's performances in World Cups over the years without uh, when we're speaking to yourself, John, especially considering Riffrix brought, brought Scotland up. It's just as a commentator when you're again uh, when you're commentating on England, do you find that sort of and let's say for example our underperformance in a World Cup. Again, possibly 1982 being one of them underperformances. Do you find that sort of hard if you're commentating on an England game to sort of not let your emotion take control of your commentary? No, I don't think so. I think impartiality is something that is ingrained for commentators. We know there are, there can be exceptions. Um, yeah. We know that we are there to represent both teams. We're there to give a, a proper illustration of the way the game is being played. And if it just so happens that your favourite team, obviously that would be England in our case, is getting yeah. beat, then you have to give the credit to the opposition. Uh, I've seen some very curious England performances. In fact, the last World Cup match I did was the one against Sweden in, in Russia when right. uh, Maguire yeah. scored, Deli Ali. Yeah. And I was delighted. But I couldn't, because I was on a world feed for FIFA, express that sort of delight because at the same time you have to sympathise with the Swedes who yeah. uh, are going to get knocked out. Uh, on the other hand, when I saw England versus Costa Rica in Brazil and it was an awful performance by Roy Hodgson's <laughs> team, then 
y- you can still retain neutrality, but express yeah. the fact that most people would have expected better performances from England. Costa Rica have raised their game and deservedly have, have taken a point out of the match or have got a draw out of the game. So I, I think it's inbuilt is your neutrality. The exceptions can be if you're if I'd been working for the BBC or for ITV on those occasions and not for FIFA, and you are basically relaying your broadcast to an English audience in England, then obviously I think you can tilt a little bit towards the home a bit more jingoistic. So that is possible. But uh, and come the day that Bradford Park Avenue playing the Premier League, I'm afraid I will be leaping off the <laughs> by the way I did a, the most testing one possibly uh, where I live is in, in Bradford in England and a few years ago Bradford City made it into the Premier League yeah. and uh, I commentated on the game at Wolverhampton Wanderers which they won by three goals to two that got them into the Premier League and it was the first time they were in there for about 80 years yeah. and I possibly did go a little bit over the top that day but felt justifiable <laughs> because I was a Bradford boy and basically I was commentating for Yorkshire Television So, uh, but that, that was as, as close as I've ever come to being biased I reckon yeah, <laughs> and and John, I mean, one question that I want to ask you is, I mean, before you go and call a game or commentate on a game, there is a lot of research to be done on the teams because when when a player is down injured or when there is a you know stoppage, you have to probably make it more interesting with facts, stats these days, etc. As well, but these days you definitely have the internet and a lot of information. I mean, there's a bundle of information out there on the internet. And you can you can just get it just with a Google search all all right now. But back in those days, how did you actually get on collecting information? How how did the whole research process go through? Well, this is very strange, actually. I say this is a double-edged sword because in those days, I used to have the phone number of every manager in what is now the Premier League, what was Division One uh, throughout the Football League. And on a Friday before a game on a Saturday, say. I- the managers of both teams up and they would give me the team for the following day and they'd tell me who'd been doing well in training and who'd got a slight niggle and so you got your information through personal contact sadly nowadays that is absolutely impossible and the only info you ever get is from uh, at a world cup for example by attending the press conference the day before the game where the manager and one player is brought and every newspaper prints exactly the same story so I tend to spend five or six hours now in my hotel bedroom uh, swatting through all the books that I've got and all the records that I've kept over the years. I've kept every single commentary sheet from every match that I've ever done, and I'm up to about five and a half thousand now, <laughs> so that I can relate back to, to any anything that is pertinent. It's got to be pertinent. Uh, what is different nowadays, as you've just alluded to there, is that is so much out there on the internet. So even, for example, two or three years ago, I was in Nicaragua commentating on the CONCACAF women's under-17 qualifiers for the World Cup. Uh, I think the match was something like Haiti versus Curaçao. And I I still managed to find some information about the players, which I I thought was extraordinary. Um, But the other way of going about it, which you can do with a thing like that, is to go to the team hotel and the training sessions and talk 
to, to managers there. You can do that at that level. But certainly at World Cup and Premier League level, absolutely no chance. And interestingly, of course, I'm due to come to India in a couple of weeks' time for ISL 7. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be cocooned in Goa in our hotels. So I yeah. that's wonderful. And you think, 10 weeks in Goa, how brilliant is that? We will not be allowed out of the hotel. We'll not yeah. be allowed anywhere near a beach. We'll not be allowed to go and talk to anybody. And that's going to make it very difficult indeed. But better be there than not to be there. Yeah, yeah. apparently. Apparently, I mean, uh, sadly, because of the pandemic, the country is not in a really good state. I mean, it's still pretty bad here in terms of the cases, the number of cases, it's always on the rise. But apparently, we would have to abide by the rules and laws because it's all for the safety after all. And I mean, another question is, I mean, this is something which you won't, I mean, this is something which is not really fond or this is something which is probably a little sad because you were at the 1985 game, a tragedy, a Bradford game where a tragedy happened at uh, at that game where you no know, 56 I, I guess it was 56 people who lost their lives yes. so as a commentator for that game how how was the whole feeling because it must have been absolutely dreadful seeing all those stuff uh, it was a, a quite simply the most horrendous day of my life uh, it should have been a day of celebration Bradford City had won the league and were being presented with the trophy which was the only reason we were there to do the game. It was a meaningless game against Lincoln City, who could neither go up nor down. Uh, it was a beautiful, lovely, sunny day, a good crowd, and nothing could go wrong, you thought. And then uh, minutes or so before the halftime whistle, I was the one who spotted that there appeared to be something glowing in the stand. And I put the lazy talk back down that we have to our, my director, and said, Peter, can you just hone a camera in behind the chap called Stuart McCall, who was taking the throwing? And there was, as my words were, there appears to be a small fire in the stand. Now, this is the most chilling thing. Four and a half minutes later, that entire stand had gone. It was burnt to a shell. And 56 people had lost their lives and people were scrambling over a wall trying to get away from it onto the pitch. And it was just mayhem. And it was quite horrendous. And my only thoughts as a commentator were to use as few words as possible, uh, because often I think that has the most impact anyway. The pictures were so graphic, it didn't need too many words. But I realized that I had to keep talking. Uh, that Obviously, the situation was becoming more grave by the second. Uh, but even then, I had no idea of, about the enormity of the tragedy. 56 people going to watch a football match on a Saturday afternoon and never going home. So it was a question of trying to keep your composure. Uh, I was really grateful for the fact, although I probably didn't realise it at the time, that I'd had all those years of training in local papers, uh, national papers, local radio, national radio and regional television as well. I was so, so grateful that I'd had, what, 27 years of training at that stage. Um, which was a massive bonus for me. Um, but it was a horrendous day, especially as I knew many of the people as well, being a, a Bradfordian. But, you yeah. know, these things happen and somebody had to be there. Yeah. It's a bit like the Hindenburg disaster, which you're far too young to remember. And uh, you are just the one who is thrown into into that situation and you just have to cope as best you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. tragic events at that time. And I mean, I don't want to dwell too much uh, on that, John. Obviously, an event very personal to yourself, given the fact that you were from that area. 
or around that area and the fact that it's again you were there commentating on, on it so I just want to go back to the uh, back to your career and it's sort of moving a bit more forward as uh, from the 1980 World Cup and talking about your experiences you start to get more involved with maybe the, the domestic game maybe sort of like later on towards uh, back end of the 80s early 90s can I ask did you prefer to commentate more on domestic football or would you prefer international tournaments or that's international football Chris that's a very good question actually uh, I would say that the, some of the football I've enjoyed most of all has been the Champions League because you are seeing the best of the best of Europe sort of thing yeah and a World Cup but having said that there is nothing like knowing your local clubs and going around and meeting the people that you are involved with day by day and you know the players better because even in this day and age, you know, I would know the players in an English team far better than I would know the players if I was doing Bulgaria versus Romania. Champions League's a bit different because when I was doing that for 10 years, we tended to just pick out the best match and I would get, well, two a week so I'd go to Real Madrid versus Bayern Munich on a Tuesday and maybe uh, Juventus against Barcelona on the Wednesday well, that's not bad is it you know those are <laughs> the games to be doing yeah, and you yeah, know you worse matches anyway. and, Messi <laughs> and all the great players but yeah. having said that you have an affinity to your own region and I've seen so many uh, glorious matches and, and promote what is great is when you, one of your local clubs gets promoted and you're the commentator at, say, Barnsley. I did Barnsley yeah. to get into the Premier League. And Bradford. I've seen, yeah. I've been at Doncaster and Scunthorpe and places like that when they've won promotion as well. So, so that is fantastic. Uh, and there was a time where I was regularly doing the best match in the Premier League of the weekend, which might have been Tottenham versus Arsenal. So even though I lived in Bradford, I was driving down to London and doing Tottenham versus Arsenal. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I've always loved my domestic football, but if, if I was pinned down to it, I would have to say that a great World Cup match like Brazil-Italy or a great Champions League match like Bayern Munich against Real Madrid is probably, you know, right up there at the top. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you've mentioned that you've brought the Champions League, uh, Champions League up. And it, um, it often intrigues me, someone in your position who got to see both the European Cup in, in in that format and the Champions League in its current format. And I know the Champions League has had various different formats in terms of multiple group stages, etc. But are you someone that prefers the Champions League as opposed to the old European Cup format? No, to be honest, Chris, I preferred the old European Cup format because I thought it's the best. They are the best team from that country. And to me, yeah. it still should be that way. So, uh, I know Liverpool are the champions this year, so they are England's representatives for me and not yeah. the team that maybe finished fourth. And when you get to a final and someone like Valencia is in it, maybe, or... Uh, you think that's a bit strange because Real Madrid yeah. and, and Barcelona both finished above them or Paris Saint-Germain or, or whatever. So I still think it should be the number one club from, from each country. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah. And, and it can lead to a Red Star Belgrade getting there. You know, of course, yeah. yeah. Like that, that, you know, yeah. Style Bucharest. Uh, I did them in the final as well. So yeah. I mean, that, that hope there for those smaller, dare I say, smaller nations, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I want to go into three specific games 
actually john but before that i just want to sneak in a patron question from our patron paul signer so he wants to ask you two questions the first one being which is your favorite match that you commentated on the favorite game that you commentated on well that's the one i've already mentioned brazil against italy in 1982 <laughs> there is one other which i was throwing here by the way which gives you a little bit of a laugh and that is i was doing the under 17 world cup in finland a few years ago when portugal played cameroon there is a point to this story and uh, portugal only needed a draw to get through to the next stage cameroon had to win it it was 1-0 at half-time with the greatest goal I've ever seen. A goalkeeper from Portugal cleared the ball high. It was dropping inside the centre circle where the guy called Viana saw it dropping and hooked it 50 yards over his shoulder over oh. the goalkeeper under the crossbar without looking. It was just the most amazing <laughs> goal I've ever seen. Yeah. By 75 minutes, Portugal were leading 5-0. It finished 5-5. Cameron brought on a substitute <laughs> and they scored five in the last 15 minutes. And if the game had lasted one more minute, Cameroon would have won it. What I found out later, <laughs> didn't know at the time, was the Portuguese boys had been out celebrating the night before, just assuming they were going to win. And the last 15 minutes caught up on them. But that was an amazing game to commentate on. I've never seen a 5-5 apart from that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that might have been a wonderful time. I mean, probably we'll have to go back and probably get get the highlights of the game and watch yes, that. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul's second question is: Is there any match that you wish that you should have or you could have commentated on? Yes, I have actually commentated on it, but I wasn't there. But in the early years of the European Cup, Real Madrid beat Eintracht Frankfurt 7-3 yeah. at Hampden Park in Glasgow. Yeah. That is often held yeah. up to be the greatest game ever. Now, I have actually commentated on that one in well, only about 10 years ago, I think, which must have seemed very funny because I would have been about seven at the time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but never let on. Uh, so I'd love to have been at that game. Absolutely, yes. And the other thing I would love to go to, I've never been to, would be the, the Masters Golf in, in Augusta. It looks fantastic on television to me, does that? And I would, uh, being a golfer, a very bad one, by the way, but I'm a golfer, I would love to, <laughs> to go to Augusta as well. I mean, yeah. co coincidentally, the guy who posted this question to you, Paul Seiner, he wrote an article for our website on that exact same game, Eintracht Frankfurt versus Real Madrid in the Champions League final. So, <laughs> it, it's, it's a coincidence. No, yeah. well, you see. No, great minds think alike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And, I mean, I, I just told you that I wanted to specifically talk about three games the 2000, from the 2010 World Cup and the 2014 World Cup. I'll just go to the 2010 World Cup first. The Uruguay versus Ghana game. The Luis Suarez hand yes, of God yes. part two. I remember the match, yeah. I, I mean, I heard your commentary. I mean, I've been hearing that off since then as well at times because I, I mean, it was all surreal. I mean, the the Uruguayan people say that they have this spirit called the Gara Sharua, which means never give up, never die. I mean, it's always fighting. Just go out there and fight till the end. I mean, the way Luis Suarez kept his hand out just to give his team that final hope that somehow Asamoajian or Ghana misses that penalty and that's exactly what happened so I mean what was the emotion there because it's it's at the end of extra time the last minute of extra time that happened 
Yes, and we were talking earlier about a commentator's need to remain impartial, but you have to take into consideration all sorts of things. No African team had ever reached the semi-finals of the World Cup, and Ghana were in position to do that. Uh, Sam Wajian, a good player, who usually scored his penalties. You know, for once, he didn't. Uh, Suarez, it was a despicable thing that he'd done, and you just felt cheated, really, or you felt that Ghana yeah. had been cheated. And you can't use that word as a commentator because that would have been wrong. Uh, but you can express words to suggest that you feel as though there's been a, an error somewhere along the line here yeah. in the laws of the game and something should have happened which wouldn't have enabled Uruguay to progress as they did do via those sort of circumstances. It's just a, a feeling. You're right, you get a feeling about certain things that are just not quite right. You know, sure we might get on to VAR. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's a horrible thing about football at the moment that we too tend to be leaving a lot of matches dissatisfied because we know there has been a, a, a bad call, a wrong call, and these things are just shouldn't be happening. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the second game from the 2010 World Cup is the World Cup final, the Andres Iniesta goal, which which was, I mean, I was supporting, I don't support any international team as such because my country is long, long way from qualifying for a World Cup finals. So I just randomly pick a team which, you know, kind of, which kind of I feel like, okay, let, let me just, I mean, it's kind of a feeling which I, I can't put it into words, but that World Cup I was rooting for Spain because they'd never won a World Cup before. And I, I kind of like Fernando Torres, David Villa, etc. because those players were kind of close to me. But when Andres Niesta scored, I was sitting, and that was the first World Cup that I watched in full from the first game, the Shabalala game, to the end. I mean, yeah. It was kind of a full experience, fully packed special experience for me because I'm watching it from India long way on my TV screen. And I... For someone who was cheering for Spain in that game, in that tournament, when Andres Iniesta scored, I was out of my seat, jumping with joy as a kid. I mean, 14-year-old kid jumping when Iniesta scored. I, and it really? was the case for rest of Spain as well. And as a commentator, how was the feeling? Because it is the first ever World Cup that Spain won. Yeah, I'm delighted to hear that you were jumping up and down because it's, that's how it should be. That's what it's, <laughs> you know, we're, we're little kids at heart, aren't we? I'm yeah. Yeah. delighted that somebody had scored a winning goal without it going to penalties. Uh, I was pleased that Spain won because Holland's tactics that day were yeah. good. They, they yeah. terrible fouls. They should have been ascending off. In fact, I spoke yeah. to the referee, Howard Webb, before that final. He and I were the two Englishmen involved in it, really. Uh, and he was disappointed later he knew he should have sent uh, De Jong off um, yeah. but when Iniesta scored I think my words were surely now he's going to score sort of thing you know and then he, 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 yeah, yeah. he, he scored the goal yeah um, yeah surely now Spain have won the World Cup for the first time so yeah I, it was emotional I was absolutely delighted Spain deserved that victory without question and, and again it's just um, a comment I made there that often the snappier the, co the the comment that you make, the better. You don't need to say more than that. You know, you just let the incident talk for itself. Let the, the crowd noise take over, which is why, what we're missing at the moment, of course, with games played behind locked doors. But I've always said that the, the best commentaries really are. The ones that have the most impact are the ones with the fewest words. Yeah, yeah. and that, that, that brings me to the third game which I want to mention to you. And I remember your words. This is the game at the Maracana in the 2014 World Cup semi-final. 
Brazil at the Maracana got absolutely thrashed by Germany, the eventual World Cup champions of that year. But when Oscar scored scored that final one goal for Brazil, I guess it was in the 89th or 90th minute, I guess, after Germany put seven past them. Your words were that the Brazil fans don't know or the crowd don't know whether to cry or to celebrate or yeah. to... I mean, they're absolutely confused. And that was the state. I mean, Brazil at their home, at their home, got battered 7-1 and no one saw this coming. No one saw this coming. And India, I mean, the, the place where I'm from, Kerala, we have a huge fan base for Brazil and Argentina. It's been there since the 90s. I mean, you can see buildings painted yellow, buildings painted in blue and white when the World Cup comes. Even their own vehicles, they do pay, people do paint the vehicles with those colors, with their flags. And it, the, the craze for the World Cup here is massive. But when Brazil lost, the next day, I couldn't find any Brazilian fans here who were joyful. or I mean, no. none of them could talk because they couldn't believe what they saw. And as a commentator for, for you, at, at the home of the Brazilians. I mean, what was the emotion there? Yes, it was the saddest day that I think I've ever seen in, in a footballing sense. I've never been at a match before where supporters of one team were leaving the stadium after 25 minutes and the director was cutting up shots of spectators crying, crying after 25 yeah. minutes because their team was literally five down and could have been seven down. So, yeah, you referred to Oscar scoring the goal. It was meaningless, an absolutely meaningless goal. Uh, it was in Belo Horizonte, by the way, was the game. It wasn't okay, in the Maracanar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, it was the final yeah. Maracanar. But um, to see, uh, it wasn't just the footballers who were devastated. Oscar ran off the pitch at half-time crying. I mean, it, because the game had gone. And I'd been to the press conference the, the day before when Thiago Silva, uh, who was not eligible to play that game, he'd been extremely eloquent what it meant to the Brazilian people. And it was as though the whole nation was in mourning. And they didn't get over that until they actually beat Germany in the Olympic Games a couple of years later. Yeah. Um, because it was such a desperate performance. I mean, it was just not that they'd been beaten. If they'd lost it 3-1 or 2-0 or something like that, fine. But to concede seven goals like that, I mean, don't take anything away from Germany, but it was a horrendous Brazilian performance, which I don't yeah. think Scolari will ever live get live down to, to be honest. And it took it's take still taking probably a, a time for the Brazilian fans to get over it. They need to win a World Cup now to get over that because that is still the most haunting memory possible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, when that sort of thing happens, John, when you're commentating on a game or you're in the same stadium, when something like that happens on that level, does it strike you at the time what is actually occurring in front of your eyes? Or do you sort of look back at it now and go, God, I was actually there then? Or do you actually no, realise no. that at that time? That one really did strike me at the time because you've done two or three days of preparation for it. You've been to all the press conferences You've built it up. You've you've gone into the game with as many facts and as much information as possible. You're looking forward to a fantastic encounter, wondering who is going to prevail. And then when after 25 minutes, the story has already been written and you already know the result, there's a feeling of deflation, strangely enough. You want a game to, to last 90 minutes. You, you, you want yeah. both sides to be in contention for 90 minutes. 
And as I say, it was a, a national humiliation, devastation, and you felt a part of it. And I was a bit disappointed with one comment afterwards, but somebody said, why did he concentrate on the Brazilian performance and not on how magnificent Germany were? Well, yeah. the story was Brazil collapsing in their own country and yet again failing to win a World Cup in their own country, as they had done before, of course, when Uruguay took the crown. Uh, yeah, but yeah. That, and that was to take that was not being detrimental to the Germans at all. They, they were magnificent, and, and obviously uh, they absolutely destroyed Brazil on the day. So they got it right. Brazil got it horribly wrong. But that was the story. Sometimes the story is about the vanquished and not about the victor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I, I just want to uh, mention as well uh, and try and get your opinion on international football because. There's a lot of negative press around international football at the moment, whether it's supposed to actually be going on during the pandemic. And that is one thing aside. But over the years, with the development of the Champions League and more and more fixtures coming into play for the club teams throughout the seasons, international football has took sort of a, a not a, it's not a backward step, but it, it's been pushed aside, as uh, so to speak, considering that yeah. I'm sure as you were. Uh, commentating back on the uh, back in the 80s and the 90s the world cup was the pinnacle of world football and that was often uh, held in such regard as that would determine who the best players were as where now it's not it's not there the champions league has took over in terms of the, the, the profile of the competition would you do anything differently to the world cup to maybe get it Maybe ch- change the format, or what? What would you do differently, to, if any, if anything, to try and get it sort of back yeah. up there? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Is this I, I, the only thing I can think of? Really, I mean, we've obviously expanded it to thirty-two teams now. Yeah, which means you are always going to have one or two teams who are just makeweights at the start of the yeah. competition. Maybe they should play those early matches as a regional competition or whatever, and the top or go through or whatever out of 16 and, and the World Cup reverts to being just the top 16 teams in the world or something like that yeah uh, it has been diluted you're absolutely right and yet we have to accept that there has been um, a, a broadening of standards right across the world I mean I was looking last week for example I think Gibraltar have won their last two matches <laughs> yeah, yeah you can't even comprehend can you I mean you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I go back to the days when England used to beat Mexico 9-0 and USA 10-0. Although, yeah. you don't, well, I was just going to say, you don't get those sort of results now unless it's Brazil, Germany. Uh, yeah. Or in our case, in the Premier League, one or two recent results. Uh, yeah. I, I don't like fiddling too much with, with the competitions. Um, you, you're quite right to say that the Champions League has taken over. Although, of course, this year, that had to have a different format, didn't it? Because yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. The pandemic. Um, we, we all like to see the cream of the crop we all like to see the best and so we want to see Brazil play Argentina and Italy play Germany uh, which we, we get in European championships I think it, Chris one of the problems may be that there is just so much football nowadays that we are separated yeah. with it and I can scan through the results in my paper you know and Macedonia 2 Slovenia 1 it doesn't mean anything to me yeah. World Cup finals it would mean a little bit more but really still we are talking aren't we about the great nations the Spains yeah. the Brazils. Yeah. if we're being absolutely honest 
those are the ones we want. And so maybe they should reduce the numbers of teams that actually play in the finals itself. So it is the cream of the crop. And that would yeah. have a bit of gloss to it. Well, I, I always, I always again, this is personal preference for me, I always prefer the European Championship just because, and I know that's gone through various formats. It started off, I think it was, was it four teams, eight teams, and then 16, yeah. and now it's gone up to 24. Sure. But I always thought once they got the 16 teams, I think was Euro 96 was the first time they done that. And it it become great then because you always had that one group of death. You always had one group where there was three teams in there, maybe three of the favourites or at least three of the possible five best teams in that one group. So I always thought straight away from the off, you, you always had, it was just competition was there straight away. Now, I was quite shocked when I was reading, I think it was last year, that they were trying to expand the World Cup. They were trying to make it 48 yeah. teams. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, don't get me wrong, I know there's a necessity to make sure that the whole world is involved. But at what point do you sort of draw the line and say the competition is going to fail massively if you exactly. make this bigger than what it is? Yeah, because um, we have to bear in mind, nobody from Asia ever wins it. Nobody from Africa yeah. ever wins it. Yeah. It's yeah. Europe and South America, basically, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Of course it is. And like I said, I think the, the interest in it at the moment, into, not in regards to the World Cup, because I think everyone around the world, everyone around the world will tune in for the World Cup. But the interest in international football is sort of decreasing, so to speak, because of the popularity of the other tournaments. And that's football. Football evolves like that. There's nothing that they can do about that. But I just think I'm just. I was just intrigued to to know someone else's opinion yeah, who's I, 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 yeah on it. And it's great to hear that from from you to say. Chris, I would also say that you could still involve all these other nations, uh, as they do, in under-20s, under-23s, under-17s, the women's, because they often are won by what we would consider lesser nations. I did the one where Serbia won it in New Zealand a couple of years ago. Uh, Where was that last year? And there was a surprise winner. I was in Poland. Uh, there's a surprise winner of the tournament there. It was it was Croatia. Um, I think it was, yeah, it was Croatia. It, it, but so there is still the opportunity there for these emerging countries to compete in international football. But then when it gets to the World Cup, that really should be the best of the best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, John, I just want to pull in Indian football here for a second as well. Even in the Asian qualifiers, I mean, you, you talked about World Cups or the big competition having less teams so that the competition is intact or the level of competition is intact. And I think that also translates to the rest of the pyramid or the the rest of the ladder as well, because if you have less number of spots to occupy, the qualifiers get even more interesting and the teams compete even better, I I would probably say. But for teams like India, etc., who are who are still, I would say, a long way off a, a tournament like the World Cup. Do you do you not think that uh, a larger tournament, maybe, maybe, maybe the Euros, the Asian, the Asian Cup, etc., can be a little bit more bigger in terms of the number yeah. of teams that participate? I loved doing the Asian Cup two years ago when I commentated on um, India beating Thailand in the very first game. 4-1, they played fantastically. They also played well against UAE. They only lost 2-0 and and they were unlucky. One of those goals came in the last minute, I think. And then in the third game, uh, again, they played really well. 
Um, and I, I, that's what I'm talking about. In a way, that is a breeding ground, is the, the Asian Cup for the bigger tournaments. You know, um, uh, it can be. It's the same in Concacaf and the same in Combabol as well. Some of the lesser nations get their opportunities um, to, to to play in those and to win them. Uh, I did the uh, in that Asian Cup. I was astonished that Qatar turn out to be the best team. Yeah. Okay, they've, yeah. got the, they've got a World Cup coming up, and, and they were genuinely Qatari players. They weren't imported Brazilians or things like that. You know, the, the virtually the whole squad were Qataris. And so that was their platform, and they proved themselves an excellent side as well. And I love to see that. I think that is absolutely great. Um, but we still come back to the point about how you make the World Cup uh, truly competitive at the very highest level. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And and I just want to touch upon Indian football as well. So now that we just talked about India also, but I mean, John, you you've been commentating for the ISL for like since the inception of the league, since the league started. And initially, I mean, you would also agree that the number of Indian players or the number of Indian youngsters who would actually shine a lot the, the numbers were less the number of indian players who actually shown were less but as the season start progressing as the years progress we've seen a lot lot of or large number of indian players getting up there you know competing with the foreign nationals and i think initially the plan was to bring in marquee players who would you know, actually set a standard for the league globally but right now if you look at the uh, isl you don't have like a lot of marquee players like like you had initially you had people like Dimitar Berbatov come in, Luis Garcia coming in. But now you have Indian players who are also steering the line, right? People like Brandon Fernandez and Sahal Abdul Samad from Kerala Blasters, obviously. So you have people like that standing out. And do you see, I mean, obviously we've seen Mohan Bagan and ATK getting a merger. East Bengal, a, a, an Indian club who has a huge, huge history, one of the oldest clubs. They've also now joined the ISL. So do you see ISL having a brighter future? And do you think this might actually help the Indian youngsters or or the, or, or the Indian national team develop yeah. even further? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the intention before ISL won even. And then the, the organizers knew what they were doing. They brought in the Alessandro Del Pieros and the Alanos and the David Trezeguets and the Nicholas Anelkas. Uh, as a marketing tool in many ways. And some of them paid off. Some uh, Ilana was fantastic at Chennai alongside yeah. Stephen Mendoza, for example. Uh, there were other good players uh, as well. Northeast uh, had the uh, Spanish World Cup winner, Cap de Villa. Uh, yeah. He was, he was mm-hmm. excellent with the younger players there. One or two others didn't make as big an impact. And so they gradually realized that they could bring in Lesser names, shall we say, but still very, very good players from European countries uh, and uh, other countries, not just European, Australia, places like that. And I thought last year that the balance was excellent, really, because they'd got people like David Williams having come in from Australia, uh, who was who was excellent. Uh, Roy Krishna had a fantastic season as well. Yeah. Kivalaro, uh and then at the same time, you've got Anirud Tapa improving immensely. Brandon Fernandes, you've mentioned just a couple there. A lot of the right backs, because they tend to use Indian players in the right fullback position, uh, some of them were excellent. And, and they have got better. Uh, and the, the most pertinent comment I was making, I'm asked this, is to go back to the first year. And I remember Ishfak Ahmed from Kerala telling me that one of the big problems was that the Indian nature is 
not subservient, that's a wrong word, but they were cautious and very nervous ab- around the yeah. start names. They were frightened of them almost. They've showed them too much respect. Now that's not happening anymore. But they, they've grown in stature of the Indian players and they're no longer afraid to express themselves alongside these European names who are not as big. Valskis was never going to be as big a name as Del Piero, but he's had far yeah. more impact. And now, of course, you have to have six Indian players on the pitch and the five foreigners. It's turned around that way. And that is bound to rub off on the national team. It has to do. And uh, I just mentioned Tapper. He was brilliant at that Asian Cup as well. Uh, and there have been others. And, and there will continue to be. You've got a good goalkeeper now in Gurpreet Singh Sandhu. Yeah, excellent goalkeeper. So, you know, there are a lot of emerging Indian players. And I think this next year, ISL 7 is going to be fascinating because East Bengal are bringing in some pretty talented players. I've read about another two today who I know from English football. Uh, Moan Bagan, ATK, that's such an interesting development as well. As always, you'll have Bangalore, you'll have Chennai. It's going to be a really strong competition this year. Yeah, and uh, one more interesting thing or intriguing thing is that the City Football Group you know, took interest in Indian football and they've acquired Mumbai City FC. So yes. that is a huge, huge step, I think, for Indian football. And that's going to be, that's going to prove to be a big, big, a big, big uh, signing or what do you say, big, big news or big, big help in the future for Indian football. Because they, they really care about their business. They really care about their football club. So I think the project at Mumbai City FC is going to be really interesting. And I think it's going to be really it's going to be really fascinating to see how that project develops over the next two to three years. Yeah, it's just a great shame that, of course, with the pandemic, every match is going to have to be played in the state of Goa. So we won't see any matches in Mumbai or Guwahati or Kerala or wherever, which is a great, great shame. One can only hope that this pandemic goes away or they get the, the vaccine required to sort it as soon as possible so we can get back to seeing big crowds. I'll never forget the first time I went to Kerala and there were 60 yeah. odd thousand there in yellow <laughs> going absolutely crazy or being in Salt Lake, you know, in Calcutta when we know Moan Bagan and uh, East Bengal can pull 100,000 people in. I mean, it's just fantastic, which people around the world do not realise. So uh, everything is there. Everything is in place for Indian football to stride ahead. There is absolutely no question. I've always said what they need is one player who makes it in Europe. If you've got one Baikun Bhutia, one Sonil Chetri, one whoever it might be, the next one off the block, and he goes away to a massive club in Europe and becomes a star, football in India, well, it will take off. Absolutely. There's no question about that. And do, do, yeah. do you see do you see any player as such probably taking that big step? I mean, not just into not not necessarily necessarily into the top five leagues, but at least a bit of a competitive or Champions League team league in the future in the next two three years. I mean, yeah, it, it's hard, but you, you expect it to have to be almost a forward, a forward player, somebody who scores goals or a, a brilliantly creative midfield player because defenders don't I, I love Sandesh Jingam for example who's come through an injury problem and now signed for ATK Mohan Bagan uh, he he's, might have done it at one stage I thought the first year I saw him playing for Kerala I thought he was absolutely outstanding and then unfortunately yeah. he's picked up a couple of injuries Annie Rue Tapper is the one that interests me because I really do think that he has got 
colossal potential, but he's not a goal scorer. I've seen him score goals. Obviously, he's got a couple. Uh, but if they can just find... There was one young striker who impressed me towards the end of last year. He'd gone from Goa... I can't remember the name off the top of my head. He'd gone from Goa on loan to another club. And he looked quick and... Uh, pacey and he wanted to do it and i'm not can't, can't remember the name uh, but I, I thought he he was he had potential so th- they are emerging all the time i'm keeping track now of all the new signings for the new season and it's encouraging that so many good young players are coming through uh, and yeah one of them might just be the what might even be this season that one of them really catches the eye of a top european scout yeah that's yeah. that's great to hear and well, hopefully, maybe India qualifying for 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 a World Cup one day in the future. Um, <laughs> no, it would be great for the country, wouldn't it? I think that that's how Definitely. players that's how players from within the country will get recognised. And like you said, like like John mentioned there, for for a player to get scouted by a European um, a club, and I think you'd probably agree, John, as well. Preferably, it would need to be one of the major leagues as well within Europe. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. For, for, by, for, by the way, you get a catch. big smile on the face. There, every Indian smiles as soon as you mention India getting into the World Cup. Chris, I'll tell you. Yeah, um, yeah. But yes, <laughs> it, it would have to be either the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, or Eredivisie. You know, one, yeah. of, those, one of those four leagues, probably. Yeah, I of mean, course it would. Yeah. The under-17 keeper Deeraj Singh actually had a trials at Motherwell in Scotland, and they actually loved him. And but unfortunately, due to work permit. Or the other issues, it, he couldn't make it. So, I mean, that was a shame because that was a real, real opportunity. Yeah, he could have been the one. But I yeah. Think, yeah. Right. Well, just moving on now to uh, our last topic, topic uh, within the within the show, John, and the very uh, which is very much present day football and the enigma that is VAR. Mm. <laughs> Now, again, we, me and Riffwick have thought uh, about VAR on our previous shows. Uh, um, well, a lot Multiple of previous shows. shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah, due to its impact within the modern game. And uh, w- one of the things that uh, I mentioned about it was that I compare VAR to Brexit. Just because it's Hang like... On, wake, so- wake me up in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Someone has thought of a catchy slogan. Uh, they've they've ran with it, and then they've got absolutely no idea how to apply it. No. Yeah, right. and uh, again, whether you're uh, pro Brexit or against Brexit, or whether you're pro uh, VAR or against it, I think we're, we've all got to say that it's not being applied properly, and they haven't forced it through. Uh, so again, I'm not talking. I'm not gonna. Uh, Ryle Riffwick up and talk about yesterday's VAR incidents. No, but just as a, I'm yeah, still annoyed. I'm still annoyed. <laughs> as a whole, what is your general consensus with it? And first of all, are you are you for it? And second of all, what would you do to change it to make it work? I'd scrap it. <laughs> How honest <laughs> is that? Uh, honestly, I don't know a fan who enjoys it, who likes it. I don't know a manager who really wants to embrace it. I don't no. know a player who enjoys it. Uh, and I just think that when people say, well, we've got to live with it now, my word would be, why? It's been experimented yeah. with. I did some of the very early matches of VAR in the Club World Cup played down in Japan. And 
to be fair, there it worked pretty well. There were only a couple of incidents in ten matches, and the stress was that it was only for a game-changing situation the VAR would be operable. Now, what is happening now is that we're getting rules, uh, goals ruled out because somebody's big toe is offside. Yeah. We're, we're, getting, years, I was saying, yeah. we're getting into a situation where the most important man in the match is sitting in a cubicle somewhere in London and he's yeah. deciding whether it's a goal, whether it's offside. Not the referee. The referees are happy to pass it on. And they're almost afraid to make decisions. Yeah, and that to me that can't be right. It's got to be the official, and the biggest thing for me is that it is taking the passion out of things. Um, you, you see somebody score a goal, and they don't know whether to celebrate or not nowadays. This is all part of the game. I've always thought it was crazy that a player gets booked for whipping his shirt off and wafting it around his head. What's wrong with that? Yeah, the emotion of the, of the of the day. And I yeah. saw a goal ruled out last year in the under. 17 World Cup in Brazil, and I could have cried for the lad who scored it. He was a Canadian player. He'd come close to scoring two or three times. He he played a one-two with somebody. Brilliant passing move and clipped the ball over the keeper. Goal. And um, four and a half minutes later, they decided that somebody else, oh. his big toe, had crept over the halfway line at the start of the move when he was 40 yards away from the play. And they ruled the goal there. This lad yeah. had a goal in a World Cup to his name and it was taken away from him. And that's what I feel. It's just taking away a lot of the beauty of the game. Uh, and we love to go away arguing on a Saturday night about some decisions anyway. Yeah, of course. And, and, yeah, yeah. And, and then when we see, Chris, that the, the VAR in London has ruled it out and we still look at the pictures and still can't see somebody offside. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were alluding to yesterday's game and most people would have said Jordan Pickford should have been sent off, you know, and yet so VAR yeah. isn't really doing what it was intended to do. 99 out of 100 would have said he should have gone. But yeah, so it's not doing what it's intending to do. So for me, it's creating more arguments than it's settling them, which is what it was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, don't... for me, looking at the game yesterday, I was more, well, I was quite relieved, but... <laughs> Yeah, I would, as a Liverpool fan, I would have been more incensed with the goal that got disallowed. I mean, you see tackles. Listen, I'm not, that's not me. Jordan Pitford's tackle was a bad tackle. It was clumsy. It was reckless. Yeah. And, and yeah, any player that does that deserves to be sending off. But you see mistimed tackles all the time in respect of... Um, well, yeah, you just see mistimed tackles all the time. That Sometimes people get yellows when they should get reds or sometimes they don't get any card at all. I mean that's part of the game, so to speak. I'm not such a, again. I'm not trying to make excuses up, but the 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 goal itself that was disallowed for the for the way it was disallowed to give offside in that scenario for me. Again, you you've mentioned it there, John. I've been I've been a, I'm a season ticket holder at Goodison, obviously before the pandemic, and I've been there when Everton have scored a last minute last year against Manchester United, and I didn't celebrate. Because I thought, no matter what happens, VAR are going to look at this goal, so I'm not celebrating. Exactly. And, and it takes I, four minutes, maybe as well. Which yeah, is, oh, yeah. And I've, I've been there, even not for the last minute, not for the last minute goals, but when they've took to, to uh, in the Tottenham game when they took and they were reviewing a penalty decision, and no one knew what penalty the decision <laughs> that they were reviewing, and I think they took six minutes. And at oh. one point, I was thinking, well, it's Sunday, and I have to go home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do have to go home today. <laughs> 
It's like you're getting to the point where you're telling me wife, listen, it's a two-hour game, but give me an extra hour on top <laughs> sure, for, for yeah. VAR decisions. Yeah. And Chris, so, we shouldn't get confused with goal line technology because that is a fantastic thing. Yeah. I mean, made a yeah. big mistake in the Aston Villa Sheffield United game, but that's one mistake in probably a thousand matches. Yeah, we can all now relate to a dozen twenty bad bad errors that have been made because of VAR. Yeah, yeah. Juju, I mean, oh god, sorry, Rafik. Just let me ask one this question, just because John touched on uh, the 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 other tournaments where he's been he's seen it apply. Do you see the difference between how they use it abroad or in other tournaments, John, compared to the way the Premier League? Well, there's certainly been more use of the monitor by the referees in the yeah. that I've got. So a message has come into his earpiece to say, go and have a look at your monitor. He's gone and looked at the monitor. Everybody can see him doing that. And that's better because, you know, he's giving himself another opportunity to think about the decision he's made. And sometimes they stand by it and sometimes they don't. Now, I think that's fair. I think that's OK. Yeah. But when the referee just gets the message in his ear from somebody in London to say, send him off, to me, that is not the right way of doing it at all. So they do do it better. They did it, to be fair, at the World Cup. There weren't too many contentious issues. But the yeah. way we've applied it, I think, in the English Premier League has been oh, all wrong. And yeah. the clock's been completely berserk today. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you touched on the goal line technology there. I mean, actually, in, in my final year of graduation, I'm actually a computer science graduate. So... I actually, I, like, I'm a big football fan, like obviously now, and I actually took the goal line technology as the topic for my final presentation or seminar. So I did a detailed technical study on how it works and stuff like that. And it's completely technology. It's completely cameras. It's completely computer vision. It's completely machine learning and stuff like that. It's completely computer vision to be uh, to be precise, mathematics and stuff. So you don't have like a human element to it apart from you know installing these cameras in the first place. So as far as the human element is concerned, you just get a message directly. If you are a referee, you just get a message to see if it's a goal or not. So it's it's all machine specific. But when it comes to VAR, it's again it's up to the human. So the human error element, I think it still stands there and. I mean, yesterday when Jordan Henderson scored, I was actually celebrating like anything because it was a 90 plus minute goal. I was yeah. shaking my head. I mean, actually, I was in a virtual screening. We we don't have a live screening here because of the pandemic. So I was also in a virtual screening. We were celebrating like anything. And a minute later, they were actually comparing Sadio Mane's sleeve to the offside lines. They were drawing those lines and stuff. And we still thought that it was onside. So when the offside, I mean, when the screen said that it was offside, we were completely silent and furious with the decision. I mean, Chris might be enjoying this as an Evertonian, but I mean, no, it's, that, um, no. I don't, enjoy, I don't enjoy it, uh, it just because, like I said, unfortunately, everyone has been a victim of this now, haven't he? In some way, yeah. in, so, in some regard or another, somewhat. Obviously, the occasion probably hypes up the anger for yourself no. because it's a Mayside derby, it's a last-minute winner, etc. It doesn't get any better, does it, for a last-minute <laughs> winner in a Mayside yeah, right. derby? There's, there's no such... So the occasion plays plays the emotion in that scenario. We've all been a victim of this now. But what, what I don't... like, you, You've touched on it there, there, and John's touched on it. What 
I don't like is the fact that the way referee last season speci- uh, specifically, it's getting relied on as opposed to being referred to. Yeah. Yeah. And John mentioned that someone in a box somewhere is refereeing the game, not the man on the field. So, yeah. And you've also mentioned that it's still human error. So what's the point in having it? At all, if it's if a if a human is still making a decision, it's all it, there's always going to be a proportion of people that disagree with that decision, and that's 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 inevitable, and that's okay. You're never going to take that away from the game. So what's the point in applying it if you're still going to rely on humans? You might as well just rely on the human on the pitch. Now I don't know if John agrees with me this, but as well, once they ran with this, and once they decided that this is going to come into play, the Premier League. I've obviously done it completely wrong, but they've took on, they've introduced it and took on too much too quick. They should have introduced it and said, right, we're just using it for offsides. Then next year, the year after, they might just use it for offsides and penalties. And then once that yeah. is working, they might say, right, we're going to now introduce two-footed challenges or tackles that we can use as well and just build on it slowly. But the, the thing that me, Chris, is when people say that we've now got to live with it. Why do we have to live with it? Yeah. We've experimented with it. I, I have this theory that it suits some sports. It suits cricket. It yeah. can suit rugby as well, you know, because there they don't mind hanging around for a minute or two. It's a very physical contact game. Uh, yeah. And they generally seem to get that one right as to whether it is a try or it's not a try. Uh, yeah. But when they say we've now got to live with it, that really does annoy me because I feel as though... That means we're being dictated to totally as spectators, as clubs, as, as referees, as players, everybody. We've got to put it with this thing, even though it has been seen to not be right. And, yeah. and I, I would happily lead any protest against it. I, as, as I started this conversation by saying, scrap it now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let's go back to the way we used to be. There was nothing much wrong with football. Yes, we always had a moan about a referee. That's part and parcel of the game, isn't it? But yeah. Um, but but when when you've given something a good go, uh, and, and we have done that at World Cup now, at uh, throughout Premier League and, and all the other leagues in Europe as well, and they're yet week in and week out, the headlines in the newspapers are all about VAR. That's not what we're supposed to be celebrating. We're supposed to be yeah. celebrating great goals uh, and great matches. Uh, and all we yeah. go away now is shaking our heads in disbelief, saying, "I can't believe they gave a penalty here or they didn't there." Or whatever, and that's sad for me. It's not the game that I grew up watching, as many people have said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one final patron question, uh, John, from our patron Peter Van Gogh. So his question for you is: What do you like the most being a commentator? I think it's because you are a part of an occasion, uh, and a big part of the occasion as well, because you are conveying. Yeah. You are talking about the pictures that people can see and adding to those pictures. But you're, you're privileged. I mean, I've seen, not just in football, I've seen Usain Bolt break the world record at an Olympic Games. I've seen, you know, some of the great Ian Botham winning a test match for England. Uh, I've seen some of the most wonderful golf, you know, Nicholas versus Watson at Turnberry in 1977. And to have the opportunity to be the voice behind the microphone that is describing this to the rest of the world is an utter privilege. And as I said, growing up, I think that uh, there must have been a latent talent there. Somebody must have been egging me on and saying, this is what you want to do with the rest of your life. I certainly didn't ever want to be an accountant or an architect (laughs) or anything like that. Um, And so to 
to have been to 10 World Cups, to have been to four or five Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, Asian Games, Asian Cup, is just fantastic. Travel the world and watch sport, I think so. I think I'd vote for that any time at all. And as I said, to, to answer your question, you know, it is such a privilege to be the man at the microphone watching the best competing at the best levels. I yeah. mean, I mean, your signature or signature of a football commentator is his voice or his or her voice. So when people talk about John Helm, when people talk about Martin Tyler, when people talk about Harsha Bogle in cricket, or when people talk about Peter Drury or anyone or any any commentator in sport, when you hear a voice, the name directly hits in your head. So when I hear your voice, yeah, this is John Helm. So. It's signature. I mean, you don't even remember some of your relatives' names or relatives' voice the way you yeah. remember the voice of a football commentator or a sports commentator. So that connection, I think that the connection between people watching on their TV screens or whatever screens and the game happening miles or, you know, continents apart, it's the commentator that bridges the gap. So I think always, always in this game, I think the role that a football commentator plays has a huge, huge influence on the people miles apart from where the actual event is happening. So I think for the job you guys do, I think it's a really, really tough job. You have a lot to prepare. You have to you know, kind of use the exact or the correct word for the correct occasion and to reach out to millions of people out there. I think the job that you're doing is massive and that the respect that we have for you is massive. I mean, personally, I think I grew up loving commentators of the sport I and mean, I remember myself commentating in my English classes because English was one of my favorite subjects because I used to score a lot of marks in that subject apart from mathematics so for the shows that my teachers used to have the radio shows the video shows I used to call one of my football friends and we used to do commentary because we used to love doing football commentary so that actually talks about the respect that we have for you people working in the industry so it, it's really amazing to hear from you guys yeah. and thank also you. speak to you directly yeah thank you I for the kind words i think the, the secret is we love what we do and yeah yeah that, that, that's a, a nice tribute that you've paid there to all the voices around the world okay. thank you no no worries john it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on on the show and i i just want to say uh, to, to yourself and all commentators really is that one of the biggest compliments i can pay is is that you actually make these iconic sports moments become memorable with your commentary because it's the commentary that we remember when it happens just as much as the events and yeah it's always yeah. Our, it's always our privilege to be there in the seat so but to, to receive those sort of words is, is very encouraging for us yeah, yeah. exactly um, i mean exactly like chris said i mean i just kind of brought in a certain sentence that you spoke in, in the 2014 World Cup. That is something that happened six years back. Straight out of my mind, it came just, just you know, to ask you a question. So that actually speaks of the impact that you guys have on people. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Yeah. 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 And I mean, one, one final question. I mean, one final question before we wind up. If, I mean, what would be your advice to the young generation or the young people who aspire to be commentators? Or how do you actually, you know, advise them to prepare for a future as a commentator or a broadcaster? Well, I always say that uh, to, to be themselves, to be honest with you, don't try to, you can seek to emulate somebody, but don't seek to copy them. Um, 
you should never you should have your own heroes and so you should prepare every match the same as well you should um realize that whether you're doing Kerala versus goa or manchester united versus liverpool or brazil versus germany the matches of equal importance to somebody yeah somebody supports every single exactly. one of those teams Uh, From a perspective of the commentator, the journalist, the broadcaster, they must never skimp on the preparation because if you do, you'll get found out. We wouldn't be doing the job unless we loved it. Uh, But you have, everybody is different. Rithwick, you're a different personality to Chris. Chris is a different personality to me. And eventually your own personality should shine through your words, should shine through your voice, uh, but never try to be anybody else. As I say, seek to emulate, but not, not to copy anybody else, really. Yeah, that, that, that's, some really, that's some really good advice, actually, John. Glad, yeah. glad to hear that. And yes, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, John, for being yeah. a part of this episode. I mean, it's been a privilege speaking to someone like you. It's not yeah. usual that we get to you know talk to people like you always. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to this yeah. episode. Thank you so much, John. And hopefully we can have you on again uh, yeah. one day, and we can speak more about your uh, fantastic experiences within the game and within uh, and within sport. Yeah, exactly. always my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, thank yeah. you so much.